Welcome to the Bedford Alliance Church Bible Reading Plan Podcast. I'm Luke Cugino, your discipleship pastor and host. This podcast follows along with our church-wide reading plan, which walks you through the entire New Testament and gives you an overview of the Old Testament. Join us as we dive into God's life-changing Word together. Hello and welcome back to the podcast. We are continuing our journey through the exciting book of Revelation, and I'm going to reiterate what I said last episode. If you haven't listened to the previous episodes on the book of Revelation, I would highly encourage you to do that because we've laid a a lot of groundwork so far, and it might be tough to just jump into this without context. So with that being said, this week we are reading Revelation 16 through 20. And we're going to try to move through the chapters a little bit quicker this week. The goal of this podcast isn't to give you every single detail, but to give you a broad overall understanding of what's going on. So if you remember last time, at the end of chapter 15, we saw seven angels who were about to pour out seven bowls of God's wrath. And this week, we're going to see those bowls poured out in chapter 16. So remember, we've already seen seven seals and seven trumpets. And now we're going to see the seven bowls. And some people view these three sets of seven judgments as describing literal sequential events. Other people say that John is writing in a recursive pattern, which would mean that he's describing the same events from a slightly different angle. And these people would typically see these events as covering the entire time between Jesus' first and second coming. So we have a couple different perspectives that we can take here. But regardless, we come to chapter 16 and we see these seven bowls being poured out. And you're going to see a lot lot of imagery here from the Exodus in the Old Testament. Because first of all, these seven judgments are also called seven plagues. And you're going to notice other similarities in language as well. You're going to see sores or boils that break out on people. The water is turned to blood. There's a plague of darkness. And there's also a plague of hail at the end of the chapter. And there's, there's even a mention here of spirits that look like frogs. Now, John tells us that these spirits are demonic spirits, but describing them as frogs is clearly an allusion back to Israel's redemption from Egypt, back to the ten plagues. And all of these things are allusions back to the Old Testament. Blood, darkness, boils, frogs, hail. These are all references back to the ten plagues from the Exodus. And like the people of Egypt, John tells us that the people here in the book of Revelation refuse to repent. So John is using imagery yet again from the Old Testament to describe these judgments. Now, Revelation 16.16 is an interesting verse. It tells us, that the demonic spirits gather kings together for a battle at a place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Now, I want to do just a, a real quick deep dive here, a little, a little aside, because this is, this is interesting. Now, this word Armageddon in Greek is actually Harmageddon, and it's one word in Greek, but two words in Hebrew. It's translating two words in Hebrew into one word in Greek, Harmageddon. Now, the first part of the word har refers to a mount or mountain. And the second part of the word megedon is usually translated as megiddo, 
So some people will say that this final battle will take place at Mount Megiddo. That's how they translate it. Now, Megiddo is a real place. It's in northern Israel, and it's a place where battles were fought in the Old Testament. But there's a little bit of a problem with that translation, and that, that's that there's no mountain there. It's a plain, which maybe that's not a big deal. Maybe the mount part of the name is, is figurative. But it also seems like an odd place for the final battle to be fought. But what's interesting is that Mount Megiddo isn't the only possible translation. Now, I don't want to get into the weeds too far. I'm by no means a language expert, an ancient language expert. But this Greek word could actually be translating a couple of different Hebrew words. So Megiddo is one option. But another option is Moed, which means assembly. So in other words, instead of Mount Megiddo, this could be referring to Mount Moed or Mount of Assembly. Well, what does that refer to? It's Jerusalem. And it makes sense that the final battle would take place here in Jerusalem because Jerusalem, in a sense, is like the cosmic center of God's dealings with humanity. So all of that to say, when you hear somebody say that Armageddon will be fought at Mount Megiddo, just know that that's not the only possible interpretation. It's not the only possible translation. And I would actually say it's probably not even the most likely option. So just wanted to, to give you that quick background there. Now, some people will say when it comes to this final battle, some people will say this refers to an actual physical military engagement. And some would say that this is primarily a cosmic battle where God brings final justice on evil. I would say that it's very possible based on the descriptions of this event that there will indeed be some military involvement. It seems to be clear from the descriptions, but I think we also have to acknowledge that there's something bigger going on here, that this, this is ultimately a cosmic conflict. doesn't mean that there isn't a military engagement, a military part of this conflict. But remember, our ultimate battle isn't against flesh and blood. God is going to destroy the powers of darkness behind the evil that we see in the world today. So now moving on to the seventh bowl, remember Armageddon or this final battle is part of the sixth bowl. So this final bowl, the seventh bowl, seems to once again bring the final judgment. Because in chapter 16, verse 17, we hear a voice from the throne that cries out, It is done. And we see once again a disruption in the natural order. We see islands fleeing and mountains disappearing and an earthquake, unlike any other earthquake. So John uses these descriptions to signal that the final judgment has come. And we see here at the end of chapter 16 that the great city or Babylon is brought under judgment. And John's going to expand on that theme in chapters 17 through 19. So in chapter 17 through 19, we see two women contrasted. You have the harlot, Babylon, and you have the bride of the lamb. So we're going to see that Babylon is judged and the bride of the lamb will be blessed. So in chapter 17, John sees a beautiful woman. She's adorned with fancy clothes and jewelry. But she's drunk on the blood of the saints. What a description. And she's riding a scarlet beast. This is the beast that we talked about earlier in chapter 13. 
and her name is Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of the detestable things of the earth. Now, remember we said last week that Babylon is a symbol of evil in Scripture. Babylon, if you remember, took God's people into exile in the Old Testament and destroyed Solomon's temple. And Babel was the place where mankind sinned. They tried to make a name for themselves, and God confused people's languages and scattered them across the earth. So Babylon is a symbol of evil. And what's interesting, though, in these chapters is that it's said that the woman is seated on seven mountains. That's in Revelation 17, verse 9. She's seated on seven mountains, and that's almost certainly a reference to Rome, which was founded on seven hills. They mark the ancient boundaries of the city of Rome. And in chapter 17, verse 18, she's called the great city, which has royal power over the kings of the earth. So John's audience in the first century would have undoubtedly seen this as a reference to Rome. They would have had Rome in mind as they thought about the great city. But she's also called Babylon, which suggests that she symbolizes something that transcends Rome. So understand, Rome was the embodiment of evil in John's day, but evil has continued throughout history. So Babylon the Great represents the quote-unquote city of man, which is all that is evil, everything that's evil and opposed to God. And in the rest of the book of Revelation, you're going to see the city of man contrasted with the city of God, the new Jerusalem. So then we come to chapter 18, and Babylon the Great is judged, and all the world is going to mourn. Now, we're not going to go into this in a lot of detail, but again, this represents the idea that all that is evil and opposed to God is going to be defeated. And again, John's readers saw Rome and a lot of the imagery here, but John uses references to other Old Testament cities in these descriptions, which suggests again that this reference to Babylon the Great transcends any one city. So John is telling us that all evil will one day be defeated and the world will mourn. And then there's a voice from heaven warning God's people not to be enticed by the harlot. God is saying, don't fall for the beauty and for the things of this world. They're short-lived. The time of judgment is coming. And then after Babylon is defeated, we come to chapter 19, and there's a celebration in heaven. This is the marriage supper of the Lamb. And the bride of the Lamb, who represents the saints, will forever be united with Christ. This is our great hope as Christians. And fun fact, this is one of the things that communion points forward to. When we take communion together as a church body, it's a foreshadowing of when we will feast with Christ in the new creation. It's a foreshadowing of the marriage supper of the Lamb. And then in chapter 19, we see this dramatic picture of the second coming of Christ. And he doesn't come as an infant this time. He comes riding on a horse. His fiery eyes see all. Nothing is hidden from him. The many crowns on his head represent his sovereign reign. And it says he has a name written on him that no one knows except himself. That signifies that no one has control or rule over him. He is, as chapter 19, verse 16 says, the king of kings and lord of lords, and the armies of heaven are following him. And his robe is dipped in blood, meaning he's coming for judgment. 
And the last part of chapter 19 describes a battle. It's likely the same battle as what we saw described at the end of chapter 16, Armageddon. And here we see the beasts and the kings of the earth and their armies are, are gathered together to wage war against Jesus. And it seems like we're building up to this big, dramatic battle. But then notice what it says in 19, chapter 19, verse 20. It says, The beast and the false prophet are taken prisoner, and they're thrown into the lake of fire. The battle is anticlimactic. It's not even really a battle. Jesus just comes in and he ransacks evil. And we'll come back to that idea here in a little bit. But then we come to chapter 20, Revelation chapter 20, probably the most debated text in the book. Now, just a quick summary here. We see an angel comes down from heaven holding the key to the abyss. And he seizes the dragon who's identified here as Satan, that ancient serpent. And he binds the serpent. He he binds Satan for a thousand years so that he's no longer able to deceive the nations. But then near the end of the thousand years, Satan, it says, must be released for a short time. And John also sees here people seated on thrones. They're given authority to judge. And they're identified as martyrs. They're the people who refused to worship the beast and were killed. And now they're raised to life to reign with Christ for a thousand years. And the rest of the dead, it says, aren't raised until the end of the thousand years. So there's so much that we could say here, but there are three primary positions to describe this passage, Revelation chapter 20. One is known as post-millennialism. And this view says that Christ is going to come after a long period of blessing on earth. Hence the name post. Okay, They think Christ will come after this millennial period. So in this view, the thousand years usually aren't viewed as literal. They're seen as representing a period where the world is going to be transformed by the gospel. The problem with this view is that Scripture seems pretty clear that the world will get worse not better, as we get closer to the return of Christ. There's really no indication of any sort of golden era, so to speak. It actually seems to say that the opposite, that persecution will get worse as we get closer to the end. What's interesting, though, is that this view became especially popular in the 19th century during times of great revival. People actually thought that they were ushering in this great time of blessing and prosperity, this millennial period that would lead to the end times. So that's post-millennialism, probably the least common of the end time views. Another view is known as amillennialism, and the prefix a means without. So the term literally means no millennium, but that's not exactly what people mean when they hold this view. People who hold this view will usually say that the thousand years are a figurative amount of time, just like many other numbers in Revelation, and they'll say that this time represents the entire period between Christ's first and second comings. And they'll say that during that time, the saints reign with Christ in heaven. So they'll point out that the martyrs who are described as reigning with Christ in chapter 20, verse 4, are described as souls. So this first resurrection, as Revelation calls it, could refer to the intermediate state before the final resurrection that will unite our our bodies and our souls. So it could be referring to the entire time between Jesus' first and second comings, 
where when we die, our souls go to be in heaven. We reign with Christ in a sense in heaven until the final resurrection where our bodies are reunited with our souls. We receive our resurrection bodies. But one of the weaknesses of this view is the fact that Revelation 20 talks about Satan being bound. That's in verse 3. And it says he's no longer able to deceive the nations. Now, many people will rightly point out that Satan is clearly still very active in our world and still deceiving the nations in some sense. But people who hold this view will say that Satan is bound in the sense of being bound at the cross while the the gospel goes out to the nations. So this could be similar to Revelation 12 when the dragon was cast down and he no longer had power to bring any real accusations against believers. So people who hold this view, amillennialism, understand that Satan is active in the world, but they think he's been disarmed through the power of the cross. He no longer has any hold against believers. A third view, and probably the most popular view of Revelation 20, is called premillennialism. So people who hold this view will say that Christ will literally return to earth before the millennium, hence the name pre, pre premillennialism, And Jesus will reign for 1,000 years before bringing final judgment and bringing an end to everything at the end of 1,000 years. And many people believe that these are a literal 1,000 years, but not all people in this camp do. Now, one of the strongest arguments for a premillennial view is the word resurrection in chapter 20, verse 4. This word unanimously refers to physical resurrection in Jewish thought. So people who hold this view argue that the resurrection described here is a physical resurrection. So the martyrs and believers described in verse 4 are physically raised to reign with Christ for a thousand years before the second resurrection occurs and the rest of the dead are raised. Now some people would push back here and say that other scriptures seem to indicate that the resurrection of those who are good and those who are evil or those who are saved and those who are lost seem to happen at the same time. But there are counter-arguments to those counter-arguments as well. And, and that brings us to an important point. And it's something that we've talked about in every Revelation episode so far. We need to have humility here as we interpret the book of Revelation. I do think that some of these views are stronger than others, but each of them has certain passages that it can explain than the other views. And they all have some strengths and they all have some challenges. So just as a reminder, remember what we talked about before, prophecy is often vague on purpose. God doesn't want evil to know his full plans, and he often doesn't want us to know his full plans. He wants us to trust him. So what matters here isn't the exact timeline of events, but what matters is that Christ is going to return and bring final and complete justice. And then we see at the end of chapter 20 that Satan is released. He gathers the nations for battle. And again, it could be the same battle that we've already seen described in chapters 16 and 19. But once again, this is anticlimactic. Satan is thrown into the lake of fire. It seems like we're building up to this huge battle. And then it just casually says that Satan is thrown into the lake of fire. And that's it. It's over. There's not even really a battle. And then we see the final judgment carried out on people in the great white throne judgment. Everyone whose name isn't written in the book of life is thrown into the lake of fire, a place of eternal judgment and torment. 
We also see that death and Hades, the realm of the dead, are thrown into the lake of fire. So death itself is finally and completely defeated. So as we wrap up here, I want to encourage you, don't get hung up on the interpretive details in Revelation. Many smart people have held different views on Revelation. Okay, many people have been in the different camps of pre versus post versus ah millennialism, and each one of those has different flavors, different versions. So many great Christians have held different views on these topics. Again, it's not the exact timeline of things that matters. That's not John's primary point in writing. John's point in writing is to encourage suffering Christians. And one thing I think that's interesting in Revelation is that the word throne is used 62 times in the New Testament. Okay, 62 times. 47 of those occur in Revelation. Now, two times it refers to Satan's throne. One time it refers to the throne of the beast. But the rest refer either to God's throne or those of the elders or the saints. So the point is that there, the throne is a motif in Revelation. It's a common theme in Revelation. John is reminding us again and again and again that God is still in control. And even when Satan gathers all of his forces, all of his strength into one place, we see what happens. Jesus ransacks him. It's anticlimactic. It's like this huge buildup followed by a yawn. It's not even close. It's no contest. So remember, even as our world continues to spiral out of control, sorry, post-millennialists, even as evil continues to be rampant, remember that God isn't concerned. All the forces of evil are no match for the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. He is going to feed not only Satan, but death itself. And we're going to feast in the new creation and spend all of eternity together with God, which we're going to talk more about next week. But until then, find hope knowing that we don't fight for the victory. We fight from the victory. Jesus has already won the victory for you. And the end of the story has already been written. We're on the winning side. Remember what Jesus said. He said, in this world, you will have trouble. But take heart, for I have overcome the world.